We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, hello, listeners. Welcome back for um, our part two of Luke chapter one. If you are with us for the first time, joining me on this series as we go through the book of Luke expositorily, um, then I'd encourage you to go back and listen to part one because it's paramount to understanding some of what we're going to do about this one um, in the last half of chapter one. Now, if you're not familiar with the way that I teach, understand this, that I... My, my bent and my gifting um, is more of an apologetic style of teaching. I'm not one who's going to go throw nice little fun stories at you and, and make you feel you know, real warm and, and fuzzy on the inside. I'm going to be one who's going to expound upon the scriptures and clarify misconceptions and things that are being taught out in the church today that are incorrect. I'm going to be more of an apologetic style. And so that might or might not be your style, and that's okay. Um, But what I will say is that this is one of the most dire needs for the church today to correct some of the the misconceptions and heresies that are out there today, some being taught from people who are oblivious to knowing that it's heretical, and some um, might even be intentional because they don't want it to say that. And Paul warns us about that um, in the New Testament, about how there's going to be people like that. Jude talks about it as well, who they creep into our love feasts, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They're not denying Him as Savior, they just deny Him as Master. So I believe that my calling, my my gifting, if you will, um, and the realm in which I'm going to choose to stay in and not try to become like other teachers who are probably more popular than me because they can make people laugh. I'm probably not going to make you laugh much. I'm going to be more the one who's going to convict you. Um, and and I'm okay with that. But I'm more of an apologetic style. I'm going to seek to, to correct misconceptions that are out in the church today. And so um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to chapter 1, uh, the first part of chapter 1 in Luke that should be um, on right below the one that you would have just clicked on. And we're going to get right into this. I just wanted you to have kind of an understanding. If you are the, this the first time with me in going through this, I want you to understand kind of what I'm about and how I'm going to teach. And it will be more of an apologetic style, expositorily just going through the Word, taking from the Word, um, exegetically taking from the Word what it says instead of trying to input my own thought into the Word. So he says in verse 57, which is where we're going to pick it up and try to finish the rest of this in verse 80. He says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Isn't it funny that her ability to give birth is considered a great mercy that God showed her? And that would make more sense if you went back and listened to chapter 1 and the first part of it. Because um, I'm not going to get into it much now because I I talked a little bit more at length about it then. um, Though it could have been more. Uh, It was a mercy that she was allowed to bear children. 
That's just interesting to me. He goes on, he says, and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, which if you know anything about Torah, that was a big deal. On the eighth day the child was to be circumcised. There's not only medicinal things involved with that, but that was just what God commanded. It's what he wanted to be done. And so they did, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. And listen to this. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Because remember, at this point, Zechariah could not speak. He was silenced um, because he doubted the word that Gabriel spoke to him in the temple. And so for roughly now about 10 months, he has been silent. He has been unable to speak. So he's probably become very accustomed to getting, you know, uh, talking to people without being able to use his mouth. And so he says, none of your relatives called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, not my vote is for John. Not, um, you know, I'd prefer this. He says, no, 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 no. His name is John. Gabriel made that clear to me. And I've learned my lesson. He's taught me an example of what it looks like to have faith in God, to obey him no matter what it looks like. Even though I was advanced in age, God still allowed Elizabeth to be born. Or I'm sorry, Elizabeth to be pregnant and to have a child born. And I will not go against what God has stated. I've learned a lesson. His name is John. And when this definitive moment came in his life where he was going to make a stand for what God had told him, everything changed. And they all wondered and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Let me just take this back to our own personal lives. There will be definitive moments in where you're going to have to choose to stand on what God has shown you through his word. There's going to be moments in which you're going to have to probably be the outcast. You're going to have to be the one who's isolated, who is alone, and nobody might even be standing with you. But you're going to have to stand upon what God has shown you in his word. And it might be a lonely path. But I guarantee you, everything will change. When you choose in that definitive moment to say, I'm going to take from what I've learned, and I'm going to now apply it and take a stand for it. Everything will change. He says, and fear came on all their neighbors. Can you imagine that scene? They all knew that John couldn't speak. He had been with them for probably days, maybe even weeks. I don't know how long it's been. Some of them might have been there for months, with, like with Mary. She was there for what, six months, three months? And all of a sudden, he makes his stand that his name is John, and boom, he can speak. Can you imagine? I'd imagine that fear would come upon them. It said, um, all who heard them laid, up, laid them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. I want you to keep in mind at this point, we are looking at about 400 years that the voice of God had been absent and silent among the people of Israel. Likened to just as it was with Moses. When you had 400 years, depending on what translation, or not what translation, what account you're looking at, 400 to 430 years, both of them are accurate. There was 400 years that the people were in slavery in Egypt and the voice of God was not heard. There was no redeemer. There was no prophet. There was nobody who had come until Moses. And the people rejected Moses at first, but then they came to realize that he was who he said he was. And they followed him as he redeemed them out. And then they grumbled and complained, long story short. 
But now we have 400 years that the voice of God had been absent. There had been no prophets that have truly risen up with the, with the hand of the Lord and the voice of the Lord. God had been absent among his people for these 400 years, mostly due to their rebellion as a whole. And here, all of a sudden, you see God revisit his people through Zechariah and Elizabeth. And John is going to be born, and this is what he says. He's, he's visited and redeemed his people after 400 years, right? And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, meaning Mary. Because they knew Mary was with them for three months, and I guarantee you she had told them of what Gabriel had said to her, that she was going to have um, a son, his name was going to be Yeshua, and he was going to be the Savior, and he was going to be of his kingdom, there would be no end. They knew it says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, backstory to all this. Sometimes God gives us prophecies and he gives us words that we look at it in a certain way and yet it's not intended for it. Okay? Just as it was for the Pharisees. They believed certain, they believed all the prophecies. Right? They just didn't want them enacted or they didn't see them being enacted the way that they had always perceived them to be. And in this, this case, it would be the same thing. He would save us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Who would that be? Well, at the moment, we're looking at Rome. Israel had always been a free nation, except in the times they rebelled with Assyria and Babylon. They would come in, they'd overtake them as God's judgment on them. But they had pretty much, when they were faithful, they had always been a free nation. Nobody could stand against them. They had gotten to do and practice and be who they wanted to be whenever they wanted to be it. But now you have Rome. Rome is oppressing them. Rome is doing things that it, it's regulating them. It's allowing them to practice their law within reason of certain things. But for the most part, they could practice their law, but they were the governance of the area. And there was the constant threat. You see Roman soldiers all the time through the city. And there's this constant threat of you know that somebody has authority over you. And at any given time, whatever they wanted to do, they could do it to you. And so to them, Zechariah is prophesying this. And I'm sure that many people who heard this would say, he's coming to deliver us. This, this one that's in the house of the servant David, he's coming to deliver us from the tyranny and oppression of Rome. Just like Moses did from Egypt in the physical sense. But... Zechariah isn't prophesying in a physical sense. It's actually a spiritual revelation that he's bringing to light here that I don't even know if he knew. Because our enemy was not Rome. Their enemy was not Rome. Their enemy was their flesh. The curse of sin that had been enacted on mankind ever since Adam and Eve. As Romans 5 talks about, that through the first man, death came. But through one man, righteousness and life are going to come. And that enemy that you have is really your flesh. It's that flesh that is hostile to God. As Romans 8, 8-9 through 9 talks about when he says that the one who lives according to his flesh is hostile to God. He does not submit to the Spirit. And so this enemy that's being referenced is that enemy that you have within And from the hand who hates you, you know that you have an enemy right now that hates you. You've never had an enemy that actually loved you except for God. And you're like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Let me just explain it to you. The word declares that we were walking as enemies of God. 
when we are unregenerate, when we are unsaved, when we are unbelievers, we are hostile towards God. We are enemies of the cross. But God, what does he say in John 3.16, right? The common verse that everybody knows. Where he talks about that God sent his son because he loved us. He loved us in this way. That he sent his only son to die for us. That's, that's a pretty big love. You were actually walking as an enemy to God, but he loved you. But as soon as you came into the kingdom of God, he is no longer your enemy. But you do have one. And he's always hated you from the beginning. So this is not a physical thing because you know what? They didn't get delivered from Rome. Zechariah died and at the time of his death, Rome was in a greater authoritative state over the nation of Israel than what they were when he said this. It wouldn't have been for years and years until Constantine in 305 AD roughly that they would have had any kind of deliverance from Rome. And at that, that's questionable as if it was even deliverance or a mixing with pagans that caused even more of a backslide for the nation of Israel. The point is, is he wasn't stating here a physical prophecy. And this was part of the Pharisees of their problem. They wanted the Savior, they wanted the Messiah to come and deliver them from the hand of Rome. And when Jesus was clearly not doing that, they didn't believe that he was the Christ and the Messiah because they missed it. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us the same thing. They missed the day of their visitation. They missed the Christ Because he wasn't coming to redeem them from a physical kingdom. He was redeeming them from a spiritual enslavement that they had from the day of their own birth. The enemy that he's referencing here. Excuse me. The hand of all who hated them was not a physical enemy. Jesus came to deliver us from the bondage of being in spiritual captivity to our flesh and under the hand of the one who hates us, Satan. That's what he came to deliver us from. And so this is just a a small little microcosmic um, lesson in making sure that when you, you look at scripture and you read it, that you understand the difference between the physical and the spiritual. Because I'm going to tell you, the Pharisees didn't understand it. And they ended up crucifying their Savior. The one who came to redeem them, the one who came to save them from their enemy, they didn't do it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Let me give you a further proof of this, where he says this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us to God, or by God. Listen to this. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, the one who thinks physically, the one who only sees things through a physical lens, the one who thinks that Israel is still the people of God, is still the chosen of God. Excuse me. The one who thinks, excuse me, that God came to save us from our enemies and that this life, we're going to have our best life now. He says, you're actually the natural person and you don't accept the things of the spirit of God because they are folly to you. You're not able to understand them. Because they're spiritually discerned. He says, if you're looking at everything through a physical lens, if you think it's going to be just being saved from your enemies in a physical sense, and you're going to miss what he's actually delivered you from. 
And so on this one, he goes on, he says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now I can tell you what he didn't remember was the covenant that was made with the people through Moses. Because Hebrews makes it very clear that that covenant has been abolished. That covenant covenant has been made obsolete. It is no longer the covenant of the law that he made with Moses to the people. It's gone back to the covenant he made with Abraham to make it about faith. Because before Moses, the law didn't exist. It was a covenant of faith. And that's what we have come into, which is why Galatians 3 tells us that it was the promised child Isaac the second born that was going to receive the promise. And that's a crucial thing to understand that I'm not going to get into just yet. But just know there is a rule in scripture, the firstborn and the secondborn. The firstborn is rejected. The firstborn of the flesh and the physical is rejected so that the secondborn of the spirit can be accepted and prove the weakness of the first. That's why Adam was born first, right? He was born of the natural man. He was born of the physical. He's born of the flesh. But Jesus is the one born of the spirit. And he proves the weakness of the flesh. And it's through Jesus that the promises of God come, not through Adam. In fact, you get the opposite through Adam. You get the promises of death and of the curse of eternal damnation to all those who would be in Adam. And so you see this promise all throughout that's given to the second born. And he says, look, that, that covenant that was made with Moses, that's not the one that he's remembering. That one's been made obsolete. The 2 Corinthians 3, Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 talk about it. You can go back and listen to my podcast over Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. And you're going to find a lot of stuff in that one. Primarily, that the law of commandments expressed the ordinances, as Ephesians 2 puts it. Or you could just say the law uh, or the covenant of the law of Moses has been abolished for those who are in Christ. For those who are not in Christ, it's still in full effect. And that's the whole premise of Matthew 5. A lot of people get confused in Matthew 5, but really it's a very easy thing to understand and to to get. Jesus is clarifying what was taught to the people and he was uh, of the law of Moses and he's now identifying what actually the law of Moses was trying to instill in the people and he's getting to the heart of the matter and he's doing it all for this purpose to say that if you want to get into heaven apart from me then you're going to have to be perfect and it's not just a matter of what your what the Pharisees told you of oh okay just don't do the action of murder he says no 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 it goes beyond that he says you can't even hate somebody in your heart because that's murder too So you're going to have to keep that one perfectly. Not just the deed. Many people can say, I'm not going to put my hand and strike somebody down and kill them. But how many people can actually say, I'm not going to hate somebody in my own heart. I'm not going to have ill will and malicious thoughts towards them in my heart. That's a lot harder to keep. And Jesus is now clarifying what was written, not by what was told to them through the Pharisees, but what God intended for the law to reveal the depravity of the human heart. And he says, if you want to get into heaven apart from me, then you are going to have to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. There will be no sacrifice for your sins any longer because Hebrews Hebrews 10 says that, that once Jesus came, the body that was prepared for them, that God will no longer look at the blood of bulls and goats, which could forgive sins. It could never take away sin's curse. 
Now, some of that might be confusing for you, and and hopefully you're tracking with me, you're following along with me. If not, go listen to Hebrews 79 and 10, and you'll probably find a lot more in-depth teaching on that, and hopefully it would be more clear to you. But the reality is, is that the covenant that he's going to remember is the covenant that he made with Abraham through faith, and as Galatians 3 says, that promised child, that promised offspring, was not referencing Isaac. That was just the physical. That was alluding to something that was going to be the more... Um, the, the, the spiritual, but the, um, oh, there's a word I'm looking for and I can't think of what it is. Um, the more prominent, it was Jesus Christ. That was the promised offspring. And it would be through him that God would establish his people, his priesthood, and his kingship. And that's called through the church. The church is his ambassador. No longer Israel, no longer the Jews. The Jews have been forsaken. Um, Luke 13, at the end of it, 34 through 35, says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of the stones of the prophets, and and kills those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood, but you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. For until you say that I am who I say I am, you will never see me again. And that's what Romans 11 is all about. The Jews have been cut off. They have been cut off that branch, or they have been cut off as a branch. From the the trunk, which is Jesus Christ, which is the promises, the commonwealth of God. But if they would come in through Jesus and declare that he is who he says he is, then they could be grafted in again. But for right now, Israel does not belong to God. The Jews are not his people. They still serve a purpose in things, just as Pharaoh served a purpose in Egypt. But they are not his people. The church are his people. And we've got to understand that. Now this concept that we might serve him without fear, I think that's a concept of serving him without fear from man. What can man do to me? The word declares. We know that we're supposed to still fear God. Because even in Philippians 2.12, Paul writes it where he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That concept is, is he says, look, you've got to understand that it is Jehovah, the one who says that no one shall see me and live. As Jehovah, as El Shaddai, you can see me. As Elohim, you can see me. But you will not see me in the form of Jehovah and live. And that's who's in us. The same Jehovah who was ascended above Mount Sinai with peals of thunder and, and earthquakes and you know all this stuff that's going on. He says, if anyone even touches this mountain or even a beast, they will die immediately because of my presence. And that presence lives in you and I. And he says, so you need to make sure that you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Even in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, it says that we bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11, Paul says that we must give an account for everything we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Knowing the fear of the Lord, then, we persuade others. So please don't um, misconstrue uh, what this passage is stating in 74, that we are supposed to serve him without fear. But I will say we are supposed to serve him without fear of man and we're supposed to do it in holiness and righteousness this idea idea that's kind of swept over the church of i'm just a sinner saved by grace i'll never be like jesus and 
And so, you know, this concept of being holy in all of my conduct, as First Peter 1, 13 through 15 would tell us that we need to be, um, hey, yeah, that's, you can't really do that. So just praise God, he loves me anyways. That's actually not a biblical concept. You are supposed to be striving for holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as Hebrews twelve fourteen says. Literally, strive for holiness. You better make it your ambition to make sure that you are holy in all of your conduct as he is holy. That you are living your life in accordance with the word. Otherwise, he says, you won't see the Lord. And so we serve him without fear of man, but we do it in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, talking about John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now that's a common expression all throughout Psalms. It's called the Or Panaim, the light or the break of day upon my face. Now you won't find that in the Greek. That's a Hebraic expression. The Or Panaim. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. It's, it's an amazing concept because you look at this. There's a footnote on mine that says, When the sunrise shall dawn upon us, or some manuscripts, since the sunrise has visited us. And I, I kind of see that latter one as the one that's being meant because it talks about that Jesus, when that break of day, he is the light of the world, when that break of day, that or panaim comes upon us, it says that we shall be radiant I think that's Psalm 34, uh, verse 3. Let me actually get to it. Maybe it's 35. Um, it's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite verses. Um, in verse 5, Psalms 34, verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. You see, when, when, when we look to the light of the world, there's this radiance that comes upon us. That or panaim has dawned in our hearts and there's this radiance that comes upon us. There's this jubilee of our heart. There's this joy that's there that though we might feel the weight of the world on our shoulders as Jesus did, though we might not always look like we're joyful, inwardly we have the joy of the Lord as our strength. You know, I, I look at Paul's life when it says, it describes, you know, what, three times he was shipwrecked. Let me see if I can actually turn to it so I don't get it wrong. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 or 11, I believe, uh, chapter 11, he says this. He says, I'm talking like a madman with far greater laborers, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received from the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure. And let me just tell you, he was blessed. See, many people would look at this list and they would say, man, Paul must have been cursed of God. No, 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 no. He was blessed of God. It's how backwards we have it in the American church today because we like to say because we have freedom, we're so blessed. 
We like to say because we have so much food, we're blessed. We like to say because we have abundance and luxury and comfort that we're blessed. We like to say because we're not persecuted that we're blessed. And yet scripture says something totally different. And listen to what he says. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure, which is the Greek word merimna. It means anxiety or care on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He says, my constant in life was I was constantly oppressed, persecuted. And I had this daily pressure on me, this weight that was on me. And it was a, it was a holy weight. It wasn't an unbiblical weight. It wasn't a weight that he says you need to cast it off, as he talks about in Hebrews 12. This was a, a biblical weight where it says that we bear one another's burdens. So I, I, I know for a fact, because Scripture declares it, and I believe what Scripture says, that Paul had the joy of the Lord as his strength. That Paul had this inward peace and joy in his heart. But I don't believe that externally that he always showed it. I don't believe externally that he was always just this smiling, kind guy that, you know, you, you're around him and you're like, man, yeah, that, that guy, he's always joyful. I think that he had the joy of the Lord, but I don't think it was always on his face. There's a proverb that actually says that, um, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't remember exactly or where its actual location is, but it talks about that um, a heart may jo- be joyful, but the face sad. And it says that the face might look joyful, but the heart's sad. You see, you can't always just look at the face and determine what the heart is. And you can't always just look at the heart, at the, at the, um, the heart and determine the face. The point is, what I'm trying to say in all this, is that there, there very well might be a joy inside somebody, but they feel the pressure, a holy pressure, in the same way Jesus did, the same way Paul did for the church. They might be beaten down. But there's an inward joy that radiates from their life that might not always look and translate to a smile on their face. He goes on, he says, the job of those who have had this sunrise, the Orpanaim, the job of those who have had that visit them from on high, who have felt the knowledge of the salvation, who have the forgiveness of their sins, even though they didn't deserve it, Here's their job. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, our job is the same job that John the Baptist had. To be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the path of the Lord, preparing for His coming. As the church, that's our job. John the Baptist prepared the coming of the Lord to the Israelites the Redeemer, the one who is going to save the people from their sins, our job as the church, as John 17, 20 through 26 says, is to be the voice of those who are perfectly one with one another, who are unified in love and truth and in our mission to bring about the gospel message to the end of the earth, preparing the return of Christ who is coming back one day. Either way, our job is to be the voice of one in that wilderness making straight the paths of the Lord and preparing the way for His return. That's our job. 
But those who have had that Orpanim shine upon their face, who have seen the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, as 2 Corinthians 4 talks about towards the end, our job is to be that voice of one preparing the way. And so if our job is to be the voice of one, what do you think Satan's going to do to try to derail that? He's going to make us have a thousand voices He's trying to speak to the world a different message. And he's going to confuse them by so doing. This is why it's so important for us to know truth. It's so important for us to, to be unified in truth. To be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, not in spite of truth, but in truth. To be the Bereans who study together, who are willing to ask the hard questions, who don't just take what man has said as the orthodox Christian viewpoint of the day, but who take what the Word of God says, and who study it together. Because we need to be that voice of one, making straight his way and preparing his way. And it says in verse 80, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel, which didn't come until he was 30 years old. So for years, John the Baptist stayed alone in the wilderness until it was time. Until it was time for Jesus to turn 30. To make his public appearance. John the Baptist would precede Jesus. And at the time of he turned 30. He went forth. And I believe it was six months as the cousin of Jesus. Six months. That he preached a message of repentance. He was baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. As a precursor of the physical. To the one who is greater than he. Who he couldn't even tie his sandals. Because he was not worthy. And Jesus was going to declare the spiritual truths and a spiritual washing and regeneration that without which you don't have a share with him. You can be dunked in water all you want to. But Jesus had to be baptized by a Levite in which John the Baptist was of the lineage of the Levites. And a Levite had to baptize another in order for them to serve in the priesthood in which Jesus was not a Levite. So he had to be washed by Levite to fulfill a righteous requirement of the law so that he could have the transference from serving in a physical to serving in the spiritual priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And that he could not just allow people to put on the holy garments of a physical priesthood, but the spiritual holy garments of the Holy Spirit. Now some of that might or might not make sense, but I encourage you to study that concept out. Jesus wasn't baptized to fulfill righteousness as if that's something we needed to do. Jesus was baptized by a Levite to fulfill a righteous requirement of the law. So that he could serve as a priest. And that he could actually bestow on all those whom he washes the Holy Spirit. Which is why John says, I baptize with water. But Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. There's a great depiction of this in John 13 when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples and Peter is sitting there and he's like, you're not going to wash my feet. Uh-uh, not going to happen. And Jesus says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. That's what Paul writes about in Titus 3 whenever he says the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let me just tell you, water baptism is not going to save you. 
You can be water baptized all you want to. All water baptism is, is an outward declaration and expression to the people of God of identification with Christ. But if His Spirit has not washed you, if He has not washed you, then you don't have a share with Him. I don't care how many times you've been water baptized. You must be washed by Jesus before water baptism would have any significance. And we learn this because of Cornelius, who wasn't water baptized until after he received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the marking of your identification with Christ, not water baptism. And so I could go deeper into that and I could expound on First Peter chapter 3. I could expound upon what the end of Mark 16 is referencing. The point is, guys, don't get lost in the physical. The spiritual is what you need. But it only comes to those who are looking for the spiritual. The natural person won't accept it. You won't get it. You won't understand it. It'll be foolishness to you. You must have a spiritual lens to see. Much like Elijah with his um, servant, whenever they were, um, he was scared, right? And the battle was coming. And Elijah was like, hold up a second, dude. I know something that you don't know. You see, you're looking at the physical. I'm seeing the spiritual. And he prayed to God. And he says, God, open, open his eyes so he can see the spiritual. And God did. He opened his eyes and he saw the chariots of fire on the, on the mountaintops. And he says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. <laughs> Let me just tell you, that's my prayer. As you go through these podcasts and you go through the word, that's my prayer is that God would open your eyes to see the spiritual realities and truth. It's the glory of God to conceal things. But the glory of kings is to search them out. Proverbs 25.2 Truth is oftentimes hidden. So that only those who, who desire it truly will find it. And may that be you as you look to the spiritual lens and you look to God to show you and reveal to you truth. The spiritual truths that God will interpret to those who are spiritual. And so uh, we'll pick it up in chapter 2. And I'm looking forward to it. This is typically the story that's read before Chris or you know during Christmas. Um, and really we'll get into a lot of stuff it's more more stories um, until we get into really chapter 4 and Jesus' ministry and I'm looking forward to that but this is this is different than what I've been doing um, I've been doing more of the the training in righteousness the what are the do's and the don'ts what does God expect of us um, as the Christians and this is more story based and so it's it's not as much in my comfort zone but I hope that it blesses you and I hope that as we go through this together that you'll stick with this and you'll um, God will show you guys things um, through these podcasts that are going to bless you convict you challenge you and instruct you and hopefully give you a more well-rounded idea of scripture of who Jesus was what he taught and who we are supposed to be in him and so um, yeah you guys be blessed <laughs>